This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So when Shaila invited me to this series, I jumped at it. You know, it's uh, one of my favorite things is to talk about some of these teachings that are not so common or lesser known. And the the teaching I picked uh, is from um, a lesser known book in the Pali Canon called the Sutta Nipata. And the the teaching I picked is a set of poems. It's sometimes it's called the chapter of the eights. The Pali term, the Pali name for this teaching is the Atakavaga, which basically means the chapter of the eights. And it's uh, not really clear why it's called the chapter of the eights because there's not much eight about it. There's sixteen poems, and uh, some of them have eight sections or couplets, but most of them don't. So. But that's that's what it's called, the chapter of the eights. Part of the reason I like this text, there's a couple of reasons. One is that it seems to be, uh, historically most scholars agree, that this is probably one of the earliest teachings, recorded teachings of the Buddha. Not only early in um, its compilation, but also early in his time as a teacher. And the way that is um, recognized in this particular text is that, first of all, the, um, the Pali or the, the language is a little more archaic than in some of the other suttas. Um, Tanasaro Bhikkhu points out that for poems, that's not so unusual. But the real, um, the real giveaway is that it is one of the few suttas which is referenced in other teachings. There are teachings, there are texts where people are saying, hey, have you memorized that set of poems? Do you know that set of poems? And the Buddha is also talking about uh, memorizing these teachings as being a useful teaching tool. And so um, this, this, uh, poem, these poems are at least referred to in other texts. And so from that standpoint, it is somewhat of an earlier teaching. The... Um, One of the interesting things I find about this text also is that it seems to be before some of the kind of standard ways that the teachings were codified uh, happened. And so there's no mention of the Four Noble Truths in these teachings. There's no mention of the Eightfold Path in these teachings. It's um, the picture you get of the Buddha in these teachings is of a solitary teacher wandering around and talking to people. And what he chose to talk to them about in this collection of poems was suffering. And that suffering is created by clinging. Clinging to sense pleasure and clinging to views being the two main pieces, two main areas that are talked about in this text. So it's it's a very direct teaching. In some ways it's simple because it, it's focused around this very simple place of looking at how do we cling and what are ways that, what are ways that support letting go of clinging? What do we cling to? There's um, 
three different kind of types of poems or three different, let's say verses rather than poems. There's, there's 16 what we could call chapters, 16 poems in this. But all of the verses, most of the verses in the, the text as a whole have one of three flavors to them. They are either describing what it's like to be an ordinary person caught up in clinging and the suffering that comes from that. Or it's describing the perspective or the state of mind or the experience of a person who is free. Or it's describing how one moves from being a person who's caught to being one that's free. So in this way, it's got a very simple structure also. Although um, I I credit Tanisarobiku a lot for my study of this um, text because he pointed out this this structure and said, when you read this poem, these poems, look for which verse, you're, which kind of verse you're reading that will help you to understand what's happening. And so I used that in my own study of this poem, of these poems. So given that the, the, there's 16 poems, it's about 210 verses, I'm not going to go through the entire thing. I'm going to pick out a few themes, I'm going to read a few sections, and uh, kind of highlight a few pieces that I find interesting about this teaching, a few of the key kind of aspects that I find inspiring about this text. So the, um, the two kinds of clinging, the clinging to sense pleasure and the clinging to views, the first thing I'd like to explore with you are some of the poems that talk about what it's like to be an ordinary person clinging to sense pleasure. This is from the very first one, and I'm I'm using excerpts here. I'm not reading entire poems. Um, And I took the liberty uh, with all of the translations. I'm using some translations from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, some translations from Bhikkhu Virado, some translations from um, Sadatisa, so different translations. I, another way I studied this text was to read as many different translations as I could find. In general, if you're studying something uh, in this way, it's often useful to read different translations because the different translations give you different flavors. So to start looking at this, uh, the, the perspective of clinging, the perspective of how an ordinary person relates to their life, The first poem, translation, Tanis Harubiku, and I, t- I took the liberty of editing these for gender neutrality. If one, longing for sense pleasure, achieves it, yes, they're enraptured at heart. The mortal gets what they want. But if for that person, longing, desiring, the pleasures diminish, they're shattered as if shot with an arrow. One who is greedy is overpowered with weakness and trampled by trouble, for pain invades them as water a cracked boat. So this pointing to the way that as we go through our lives, if we're orienting our experience, orienting towards trying to both hold on to sense pleasure, hold on to pleasant experience and get rid of unpleasant experience, this incredibly natural and uh, human way of orienting to the world, we all do it. 
if that's our um, if that's our way of thinking, we'll find happiness. We are destined to experience suffering in this life because things are impermanent. We are bound to be confronted by pleasant things going away and unpleasant things being here. And so the Buddha call, describes this as pain invading them as water, a cracked boat. Another verse on this. Look at, Longing for what's over, this is from the second poem, longing for what's over or what's to come, yearning for pleasures in the present and pleasures in the past, those who are greedy for pleasure, hunting for it, deranged, selfish, have entered the wrong road. Look at them, floundering amidst their cherished possessions like fish in a dwindling stream. That image a fish in a dwindling stream. That one is very um, evocative to me. And, uh, you know, actually at one point in a long retreat, I was sitting a long retreat, and I was um, experiencing the mind just flopping around, trying to find some pleasure somewhere. And it had that feeling. It felt like a fish. And this, 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 uh, this image from this poem came to me, and I just, I laughed. It brought, some, it brought some amusement to just watch the mind like flopping around. Isn't there some pleasure somewhere? <laughs> so the, um, the other main area, so it, it points to the, the, these teachings point to um, the way it is for an ordinary human being clinging to pleasure. And that clinging to pleasure does include clinging to getting rid of displeasure, clinging to getting rid of unpleasant. But then another major area of teaching in this text is around clinging to views. And actually, I think, you know, clinging to sense pleasure is, it's, it's something we all do. It's kind of how we orient the way we live in our lives often. Um, it's very natural, you know. We, we learn from the moment we're born that if we get something we like, we get something pleasant, it feels good, you know. We get a little bit of a feedback hit, hit that, oh, that feels good. Or if we manage to get rid of something we don't like, again, there's a little bit of feedback hit, that feels good. And so it's very natural that we orient around that. And yet, as we begin to practice, as we begin to explore our experience, we see the the pain of it, the pain of holding on to pleasure and trying to get rid of pain. We begin to recognize that that may not be so helpful. And so we may begin to, to have a way to, to let go of some of our um, holdings around sense pleasure. A deeper level or a deeper layer of holding is around views, uh, clinging to views. Views about who we are, what we're capable of, views about other people, views about um, uh, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. So many of our views come in, are absorbed through our upbringing, through our culture, uh, through our families. You know, we have views about um, how close you should stand to somebody when you're talking to them whether or not and how much you look at them in the eye, 
whether you shake hands when you meet somebody that you don't know. These are, these are things like, these are just things that come in through our culture. They're views. They're not, they're not you know, the right way. And this is just examples of, you know, how views kind of get absorbed. But when you meet somebody from a different culture and they stand a different distance or, or look at you in the eye a little longer or don't look at you in the eye or perhaps hold your hand while they're talking to you, there can be discomfort because it's not familiar. And so the, the, um, the holding to views is around believing or having the perspective that this is the right way to do it. Now, these are simple examples that I'm giving here. Very simple examples. But, but we hold to, um, to views. Of, I mean, views, views are actually, and in the Buddhist teaching, and, and I'll, I'll read some of these, views are, views are actually some of the main reasons why there's conflict in the world. People holding to views. In our country at this point, views about around race are a huge source of conflict. Different perspectives, different beliefs, different views. The Buddha pointed to clinging to views as being one of the main reasons there's conflict in the world. And holding to fixed opinions, it creates a sense of self and other, this uh, perspective of view. So some of the teachings from the Atakavaga on the drawbacks of clinging to views. Abiding by fixed opinions and pleased with themselves, they say, my opponent's a fool, they're no expert. Upon whatever basis they regard their opponent a fool is the same opinion upon which they regard themselves as an expert. To the extent to which they rate themselves expert, they despise anyone else who makes the same claim. And my favorite, one of my favorite verses from the entire teaching, those attached to perception and views roam the world offending people. Those who maintain a view and dispute, saying this alone is true. This is this is actually this is um, this is a, a a person asking a question and the Buddha responding. So the questioner is saying, so those who maintain a view and dispute about the view, saying this alone is true, is criticism all they receive, all they experience? Don't they also receive praise? So this person is pointing to you know the Buddha apparently has been talking to to him about um, uh, you know. When you express these opinions, you may, you may be criticized. And he says, but don't you also get praised? And as if that makes it better. And the Buddha says, whatever they receive is trifling. Not enough to bring them any peace of mind. I say there are only two consequences of dis- dispute, praise and criticism. Seeing this, you should not dispute. Regard instead non-dispute the grounds for peace. There's so much to explore around views, to begin to recognize that we hold views, to begin to see that if there's conflict, there is a view being held somewhere. And so curiosity about that. 
And if there's conflict in yourself, sometimes there's a view being held about your own, your, yourself. So this, this just can be something that we can explore in our experience. You know, if there's some kind of conflict, curiosity, what view am I holding? You know, just hold that question for yourself. I gave a teaching this morning around um, perception and concepts and how these lead to views. And there's a classic, a classic teaching around this, the, the, um, the blind people and the elephant. Um, and this, the story, I'm sure many of you have heard this teaching story. It's actually a teaching story from the, the Pali Canon. It's found in the suttas. And the story goes that a king asks um, his ministers to bring both an elephant and blind people and, and to show the blind people the elephant by having them touch the elephant. And some of the blind people touched the legs, some of the blind people touched the side of the elephant, some the tail, some the tuft of the tail. And then when asked, they each responded, um, you know, when, when asked, what is an elephant like? They each responded with a different analogy, a different answer. Some saying, well, an elephant's like a post, those that touched the leg. An elephant's like a wall, those that touched the side of the elephant. An elephant's like a broom, those that touched the tuft of the tail. And then uh, hearing each other's responses, the teaching story goes on, that they started arguing. You know, an elephant is like this, you're wrong. No, an elephant is like that, you're wrong. And so the view, based on their own experience, became kind of hardened. This is what an elephant is. And um, the, the story goes on that they actually came to blows around this. You know, rather than being curious, oh, that's interesting, you think it's like a broom? Boy, sure felt like a wall to me. Let's see if we can figure out what's going on here. You know, rather than doing that, people tend to solidify around their, their views. And in this case, this is something, this particular story, I think, is, is uh, really teaching for us because it's pointing to views that are created based on our own experience. These are some of the most tenacious views that we have. We experience something we think we know from our direct experience, but maybe we've only got a piece of the picture. Maybe we've only seen a little piece of it. So, you know, when we come up against in conflict in this way, maybe we can think, maybe there's a bigger picture in which we can explore how do these parts connect. And this morning, later talking about this, the question came up about political you know, views. And it's like, yeah, some people are saying it's like it's a post, and some people are saying it's like the tuft of the tail is a broom. And it's like, we are entrenched in our opinions, and is there a way? You know, it seems imperative to me at this point in our country that we find a way to step back and talk about the elephant. Or the donkey, yeah, either one. <laughs> let's, let's, let's see if we can find a way to the bigger picture. You know, this is creating so much suffering and division and pain in our world. And the Buddha pointed to this 2,600 years ago. Views are going to create suffering. Views are going to create conflict. And so he spoke to this. So the next thing I'd like to share are some um, verses in this text that describe somebody who's free, 
somebody who has um, freed their mind from clinging. The, the, the really, this, these poems are directly pointing to the, the teaching, one of the, the pithy teachings of the Buddha when the Buddha was asked at one point, could you describe your uh, teaching in a, in, a, in a short phrase? Uh, he said, nothing should be clung to as I or me or mine. And really, I think this whole text might be considered a commentary on that, on that one phrase. Nothing should be clung to as I or me or mine. And so uh, those that have released that clinging to I or me or mine, that person is understood in this context to be free of the suffering that comes from that clinging. And that, in the Buddha's understanding, was actually what we call suffering. We think what we call suffering is something that's unpleasant. But pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience will come and go through our lives. What's really going on there is like, that's just flowing through what really is going on is that we react, we, we get averse to the, the unpleasant, we hold on to the pleasant. And so it's something going on in our own minds that is creating this struggle, this suffering. And so this is what the Buddha is pointing to, of that release of that clinging. And so some of the poems describe liberated people, people who are free from this clinging. And there's different ways... They're described, and, and this is one of the, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of this um, particular text, because the way that people who are free are described, there's, it's primarily described in terms of how they are in the world. You know, how they, how they act, how they walk in this world, what they do. Sometimes it talks a little bit about their state of mind, but mostly it's just this very ordinary description of somebody living in the world. So here's a description of somebody who is liberated. A questioner asks the Buddha, I want to ask you about the perfect person. There are those people we call those who are calmed. I don't think I, I didn't, I didn't edit this one for uh, Gender neutrality, I'm going to try to do it on the fly. <laughs> those who, those, there are those people we call those who are calmed. Can you tell me how they see things and how they behave? One who is, who is calmed, who has extinguished all craving before the time the body disintegrates, who has no concern over how things began or with how they will end, and no fixation with what happens in between. Such a one has no preferences. They have no anger, no fear, and no pride. Nothing disturbs their composure, and nothing gives them cause for regret. The wise, man, the wise person is restrained in speech. They have no longing for the future and no grief for the past. There are no views or opinions that lead them. They can see detachment from the entangled world of sense impressions. 
They do not conceal anything and there's nothing they hold on to. Without acquisitiveness or envy, they remain unobtrusive. They have no disdain or insult for anyone. They are not full of themselves or addicted to pleasure. They are gentle and alert. With no blind faith, they show no aversion to anything. They are not people who work because they want something. If, he, if they get nothing at all, they remain unperturbed. There is no craving to build up the passion to taste new pleasures. The sage, freed from greed and selfishness, does not speak of oneself as the, does not speak of themselves as among those who are superior, equal, or inferior. The sage regards nothing in the world as one's own and does not grieve because of what does not exist. Not blindly following religious teachings, such a one is truly called peaceful. So mostly the description here is in terms of what they don't do. They're not angry, not fearful, not pride. They don't have fixation, no preferences, no blind faith, no aversion. So a lot of things have been let go. This is an interesting aspect of the Buddha's teaching. In general, the Buddha doesn't talk so much about what we can get, but what can be released. Clinging can be released. All of these areas are areas of clinging released. There's a few positive descriptions here. Calm, wise, gentle, alert, even-minded, Elsewhere in the, this text, there are some other descriptions of qualities of a liberated person. Serene, wise, calm. They're mindful. They see, they know, and they're equanimous. So beautiful qualities of mind that result from this letting go. So this is a picture of someone who's free in this teaching that is someone walking around the world? It's, it, this person is engaged in the world. And it's, it's a picture that may not be uh, very close to where we are, you know, not averse, <laughs> not, uh, not frustrated, no preferences, you know. But we're, we're working on that. But uh, it's, it's a picture of, of, of a person that I can imagine myself to possibly be someday. This, this description or this way of describing the liberated state doesn't present some abstract idea of liberation apart from the qualities of someone who is free. This is in contrast with the standard Theravada description of someone who's liberated being someone who is free from the round of the cycle of rebirth. Someone who, on their, on their uh, final passing uh, at death, are no longer born again into this world. A metaphysical difference, the, this metaphysical difference, some fundamental shift of being that changes the metaphysical state of a being. This is a piece of the Theravada tradition uh, 
um, that is, it can be found through the Pali Canon, but it's not found in this teaching. This teaching really emphasizes this worldly freedom. I find that to be very inspiring, personally. There's some quotes uh, from some of my research around this text. Uh, one a person who wrote, I believe it was, she wrote a scholarly text on this, on this text, Grace Burford, um, and I read her. It might have been like a, 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 a doctor's, doctoral thesis or something. I read it. And at, she gives this quote in there. The Atakavaga, this text that we're looking at, is exceptional within the, even the earliest Buddhist literature in its non-metaphysical presentation of the highest good achievable by humans. Metaphysical presentation is often something... Uh, that is beyond what can be actually uh, known in this life. So the Atakavaga is exceptional within even the earliest Buddhist literature in its non-metaphysical presentation of the highest good achievable by humans. It is significant as an, exa- as an example of how the Buddhist ideal goal can be presented without all of the us- usual cosmological and metaphysical accessories that accompany it in its traditional Theravada doctrine. So there's a lot in the Theravada that brings in different realms of existence, some things that some Westerners have difficulty um, connecting with. Um, And this particular teaching is a coherent teaching in which that is not, um, not brought in. Another quote from another scholar. The Atakavaga sets out to describe a practical solution to human sorrow, not merely the abstract sorrow of rebirth, but the everyday sorrow of strife and aggression. Again, this is one of the reasons I find this particular teaching so inspiring. It speaks to me here and now, in this very life. The next set of... um, Types of verses relate to the path of the path of practice, how to get from being the ordinary person to being the liberated person. The training uh, of this is described in quite a bit of detail in the last three poems. I'll just read this. I'll read some of this and see what you might notice about it. So a questioner asks, Venerable Sir, speak about the path of practice. The Buddha says, A person should not have covetous eyes. One should close one's ears to ordinary chatter. One should not be greedy for flavors. One should not cherish anything in the world. One should be meditative, not footloose, One should desist from worry, should not be indolent, should live in lodgings where there is little noise. One should not sleep too much. One should be devoted to wakefulness and keen endeavor. One should abandon laziness, deception, merriment, various kinds of amusement. One should not fear blame, nor be conceited when praised. One should drive out greed, selfishness, anger, and malicious speech. One should not be a boaster, One should not speak scheming words. 
One should not cultivate impudence, nor utter quarrelsome speech. One should not be drawn into telling lies, nor be deliberately treacherous. One should not despise others for their lowly way of life, or wisdom, or precepts and practices. Basically, in this teaching, the Buddha is encouraging us to behave as though we were free. This, the, it, when, when, I, I, when I read the, these kinds of paired texts, the description of somebody who is free and the description of somebody who's in training. The difference is the word should versus is. Very much the, the person is meditative, not footloosed, is desisting, is not worrying, is not indolent. So the should, the word should here, this isn't, the, the, to me this isn't Stop your mind from doing what it's doing. Because we can't do that. Good luck with that. But to, you know, in, in some ways, the, the, the path of practice he's recommending is to try to model the behavior of those who are free. In my own experience, this is a very valuable practice, but only when I am willing and very honest with myself about what's actually going on in my mind. And so, in one, in one example uh, around patience and impatience, cultivate patience by acting patiently. That could be something expressed here. Cultivate patience by acting patiently. If you're experiencing impatience, it may be tempting to repress that impatience in order to act patiently. But in my experience, this is not what the, the Buddha is teaching, and it is not actually effective. But what is very effective is to fully recognize, yep, wow, there's a lot of impatience happening here. I had, I, I'll give you an example of this. I was, I was, in, um, I was in a longs was before it became something else, shopping in a longs. And um, I was very impatient. I was kind of in a hurry to get through the store. And I found myself, what, what I noticed, it was being expressed through my body. And we see this in, our mind states are often expressed through our body, even in subtle ways. It's expressed through expressions on our face. It's expressed through the way we engage in the world. And so this impatience was coming out of me by picking up things off the shelf and throwing them into my basket. So it's like this, you know, just... (laughs) And I noticed this and decided, okay, I've been practicing with patience here. I'm noticing the impatience. I am going to see, not repressing this impatience, but I'm going to see if I can act as though I were patient. And so I slowed down my movements. I fully acknowledged, yep, there's impatience here. So this was not about repressing. Not about repressing the impatience. So this is, this is an act of deep honesty. Really acknowledging, yep, there's impatience here. And, and it's kind of like the way I explored it was like, okay, I'm going to see, can I 
fully know this impatience but not let it leak out of my skin? Can I let it not let it leak out of my behavior? And so I began picking up things more carefully and placing them in my basket. Within about 30, 40 seconds, the impatience had fallen away and the mind was quite calm. So this kind of practice, I think, is some of what the Buddha is suggesting here. He encourages us to model the behavior of wise beings, but watch our minds, <laughs> not repress, not repress. You know, worry is arising. Notice how worry leaks out into your, into your uh, actions and see, okay, can I really know this worry, but behave as though I was not worried? See what might happen there. This is, it's kind of an interesting dance to play with. So this, to me, um, is really beautifully spoken here in this next phrase, next verse. If ascetics or ordinary people irritate one with their talkativeness, one should not respond harshly, for the peaceful do not retaliate. If you want to cultivate peace, act peacefully. We sometimes think that it's, um, I know you know, there's, the, there's this really strong feedback loop between our mind and our bodies. You know, what's going on in our mind will filter out into our bodies, as that example around the, uh, the impatience shows. But this feedback loop does go both ways. So as we engage in the world, not repressing that we don't feel patient or peaceful or anxious, you know, not, not, rep- not repressing anxiety in order to uh, act peacefully, but just watch and see that movement of rebound on the mind. You know, we, in some ways we trust and we're a culture of let it out, you know. What's going on in our minds we have to be fully honest about and let it out. This may not be the best approach all the time, especially with something like anger. You know, it, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you repress anger, but expressing it and letting it out in some ways tends to reinforce that pattern. And so what might it mean to fully know, yep, there's anger here, and what might it mean to act as though I were not angry? This is kind of a a fake-it-till-you-make-it teaching. (laughs) But again, we have to be really honest with ourselves about what's actually going on in our minds. See, is there another one? Uh, I'll read a few. Um, well, I don't know that I have time for this. Let's see. One thing I'll mention just briefly 
there's a huge other part of the um, of the teaching uh, of this text that relates to views um, and not clinging to views, not clinging to any views, including Dharma. And this is a somewhat paradoxical teaching in some ways, and there are people who believe that the teaching of the Atakavaga encourages us to not hold any view at all. And um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get that sense from the texts uh, and from this teaching. To me, the, the way in which the teaching of don't cling to views, you know, it's really clearly described that clinging to views will create if we're clinging, even clinging to the Dharma, you know, this Dharma, what the Buddha teaches, this is right, I'm willing to kill for this, you know. This, this is going to lead to suffering in the world. Even, even the Buddhist teaching would lead to that if we're holding it in that way. You don't believe in this teaching, you're wrong, you're bad. If that's, if, if that's how the, 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 the Dharma is held, the Buddha said, that's not the way that's not going to lead to the, the lessening of suffering. And so, um, even the Dharma, he says, should not be clung to. And yet, I don't believe he's saying the Dharma should not be used. The Dharma should not be valued. I see this exploration on letting go of clinging to views to be um, expressed by another uh, Sutta, this one very famous, so this doesn't really fit in the um, category of lesser-known teachings. This is the simile of the raft, where the Buddha talks about the eightfold path is like a raft. We, uh, we make a raft to cross over our suffering. Uh, the, the suffering is described as you know, the near shore where we are standing, we see the far shore where there's peace and there's this flood of water in the middle that's, that needs to be crossed over to get there. And all you see on this side of the, sh- of the shore are sticks and mud and you know, maybe some vines. And so gathering those together, he uses this analogy to make a raft to cross over the, uh, the water to get to the other side. There's a number of things I like about this analogy. One, the first one, we make the raft out of what's available, what's right here. You know, we don't have to build this amazing, like, uh, you know, luxury liner to cross the stream. We can build this raft out of what's available, out of our direct experience and the teachings. The Buddha says that the raft is the eightfold path. Put together with our sights and sounds and spells and tastes and such, knowing our experience through the Eightfold Path. And so we build our raft. And this raft, you can envision a raft made out of sticks and mud and and twine, I mean vines. It's like, it's going to have a lot of holes in it. You know, you're crossing over this uh, flood. The flood is said to represent the suffering of greed, aversion, and delusion. You're going to get wet when you're crossing over this this stream. 
You're going to be in contact with the pain. The raft is keeping you afloat on top of it, not sucked under, not swept away. You're making effort with your hands and your feet to get across. But you're going to get wet. You are going to experience suffering. And yet the raft is giving us a new perspective. The Eightfold Path is giving us a new perspective. Now, if, if the teaching is, you know, don't cling to anything, you know, it's like, if you let go of the raft when you're in the middle of the stream, you are going to drown. So, use the raft. Cross over the stream with the raft. And then the last part of the teaching of this is that the Buddha um, says that, so somebody having made use of this raft to cross over the stream, once they're on the other side, suppose they think, wow, this raft has been really useful to me. Maybe I should put it on my head and carry it around with me wherever I go. Would that be useful? No. Instead, let the raft adrift and go about your business. So in that way is my understanding of not clinging to the Dharma. And at the very end of that teaching, he even says, and so even the Dharma and wholesome states should not be clung to. How much more so unwholesome states should not be clung to. And yet that analogy has described making use of the Dharma to free ourselves, to be in contact with that suffering in a way that helps us move from being pulled under and sunk by it to being able to meet it in a new way, to transform our suffering. And we do that by being in contact with it, not by somehow magically transcending it and floating above and landing on the other side. So, I hope this has given you some sense of appreciation for this early teaching of the Buddha. Um, There's not a lot of, there's a few translations out there if you're interested in this text uh, and want to read it. I will warn you, uh, it's hard to read. It's, it's, it's a little dense, and it's got some archaic ways about the way things are expressed. Tanasaro Bhikkhu has a full translation of the Atakavaga on Access to Insight, and it is, he's got some good notes with it that are helpful, but again, it's, it's hard to read. He does a, a, my understanding is he does a fairly accurate literal translation, but that creates some... Uh, challenges to reading it in English. There are other translations out there on the internet that you can search for. Chapter of the Octads is a good thing to search for. Chapter of the Eights. And Gil Fransdahl has written a book. It will be coming out. I think the publication date is October 27th this year. The book will be called The Buddha Before Buddhism. Wisdom of the Early Teachings. So that will be available, I think, from Wisdom Publications. And he's, he, he's, he's writing commentaries to each of the poems, so uh, that may be of interest to you. You know, there's not, there's not a lot of English-language translations of this um, poem out there, so Bhikkhu Bodhi, as far as I know, has not done one yet. 
So um, thank you for your attention. We are at 9 o'clock. And if any of you would like to um, come up and ask questions, I'm happy to stay for a little while. So thank you for your attention.